Hello, and welcome to the Agents of Change in Environmental Health podcast, brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. This is the very first episode of our podcast. The Agents of Change program was started to promote and embrace diversity within the environmental health community and listen to solutions from tomorrow's leaders. We work with early career scientists who come from historically underrepresented backgrounds in science and academia to write about their lived experiences and research expertise. In our first year, fellows wrote about everything from black farming in Philadelphia and the cultural significance of fire in indigenous communities to housing insecurity among immigrant communities and a lack of representation in research. You can check out all this work at agentsofchangeneh.com. Through this podcast, which is part of the launch of our second group of fellows, we want you to hear their voices, their research, their stories, their vision for a more just, equitable, and healthy society. We'll talk with these fellows throughout the next few months, and we hope you can join us. But first, how do we get here? To understand how the program came together and who's behind it, I spoke with Dr. Ami Zoda, an Associate Professor of Environmental Health at George Washington University Milken School of Public Health and the founder and program director of Agents of Change. We talk about who we are, how the program came to be, why it's so crucial right now, and how science and science communication is shifting. So now I'm joined by Dr. Ami Zoda. Ami, how are you? Doing okay. Hanging in there. Yep. Good, good. You know. What's on everyone's mind? Yeah, it's crazy times. And we all start with the uh, how are you doing? And it's a loaded question these days. But I, I did want to talk to you about this this program this that we're super excited about. Um, and I thought it would be first to know a little bit about your day job and how launching Agents of Change fits into it. Sure. Um, so I'm a research scientist. I'm, I consider myself an environmental health scientist. Um, I'm an educator, a mentor. And um, yeah, so just a little bit maybe about my research. I am these days thinking a lot about how structural factors, um, whether it's policy or systems of oppression like racism or sexism, how those actually influence our everyday environmental exposures, um, whether that's chemicals in beauty products, in your food or in your inside your home. And then what are the consequences of those exposures, um, particularly for women and children's health? So that's a little bit about my research. Um, And one unifying theme that kind of goes across everything I do, whether it's teaching or mentoring or doing science, is not to do science simply for the sake of discovery or to advance knowledge, but to do science that will directly contribute to improving health and improving um, social equality. And I think science communication is critical to connecting good science to policy change. So I started Agents of Change because I wanted to make the process of science communication more diverse and inclusive. 
That last point's important when you talk about uh, taking this to science, having science communication as part of the science kind of built in. Because traditionally, and, and I'm not a scientist, of course, but traditionally, I, I don't know if that's been at the forefront or definitely not incentivized. So I'm wondering, you know, one of the main reasons is to have the researchers uh, give them a chance to speak about the research in a more formal, informal, um, informal way, connecting to more people. And this, this, of course, goes against that thinking that, hey, stick to the science for scientists. So I'm wondering if you could talk about why you think it's important for scientists to communicate to people outside of academia and research institutions and how maybe this landscape is shifting a little bit. Sure. I think what has always driven what's been a, a, a huge motivating factor for me is how to maximize the impact of my work and everything I do. and. I am a firm believer that your responsibility as a scientist does not end when you publish the study. And actually, to me, that's when the real work begins. And you have to actively find ways to disseminate your work to other people, even to the scientific community. If you really want people to build upon your work, to use your data, then you have to be creative and intentional about the dissemination part of it. And I, since I've always done policy relevant work, um, I have always especially been conscious about how can I most effectively disseminate my work to stakeholders outside of academia, whether that's policymakers, um, doctors, or even just concerned parents. And um, so that they can use this information to improve their lives and make more informed choices. And so, um, okay, so how, I mean, so that is true that um, it um, isn't normally incentivized within the academy. I find that some of that is slowly changing and some of that change has been accelerated by our current health crisis and pandemic when um, we see how important um, good science communication is to um, trying to kind of get control of this situation. And so a little peek behind the curtain here. So I, I've known Ami before this program, of course, as a, as a journalist uh, writing about her research for years. Uh, and, and so um, I, I know the answer to this a little bit, but I was wondering if you could kind of give the audience an example of a time when your science communication and your research has helped to create some kind of policy change. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, I kind of got the science communication bug early on in my career. I was um, just fresh, you know, done with freshly out of my PhD program at Harvard. And I went to the Silent Spring Institute and um, started kind of, it was a surprise sort of unexpected finding. We found really high levels of these um, brominated flame retardants in the bodies and homes of people in California. And we had a suspicion it was because of their unique uh, policies in uh, California that ended up requiring greater use of flame retardants in the pro in their products. And um, and so we um, I was able to kind of get involved with trying to shape uh, health and safety standards for consumer products um, in California and. Um, and then kind of um, I moved on to uh, do a second postdoc at UCSF and 
There, my work showed actually how lower income communities and communities of color within California were particularly highly exposed to these flame retardants, almost to the levels of what you would normally find in workers. And, um, and so I became part of this coalition of scientists, doctors, um, activists who were trying to change flammability standards there. And I mean, it took about five years, if not longer, before um, change happened. But, um, you know, that was just exciting to be part of that process, even if it was also discouraging when we weren't successful. And kind of one part of that, you know, kind of one piece of the um, argument where my research really, I think, helped was, you know, some opponents of this legislation really tried to frame this as like this green environmental bill. But my work showing that low income, socially vulnerable populations had higher exposures and coupled with the fact that there was growing evidence that um, especially when pregnant women were exposed, there were um, learning and development problems in their children. You know, we we really tried to do a lot of science communication to show, look, here is actually something we can do to protect the 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 health and development of this at-risk population. And um, and so, you know, you, it it may be environmental policy, but it's also social policy and it's also health policy. So kind of helping to reframe um, you know, this policy in a in a in a bigger context. So um, and I think I, you know, I got hooked. And, and so since then, it's, it's been critical to um, kind of other work that I've done. Most recently, I've also been uh, involved in kind of cosmetics legislation in California and, and um, on the national scale. And just for the audience, flame retardants are added. These are added to furnitures and building materials. And these are harmful because they mess with our hormones and other kind of health related impacts. That's right. So we were um, really looking at the use of uh, flame retardants that are are added to uh, furniture because um, foam-based furniture is particularly flammable. And um, at at this point, um, uh, uh, they are hormone-mimicking chemicals and um, their exposures, especially um, when, um, you know, when pregnant women are exposed, um, exposures can actually have actually can actually impact um, neurodevelopment, and um, there are now a whole host of so- studies showing how higher exposures to flame retardants um, in the prenatal period is even associated with reduced IQ. So these are serious impacts that can really affect you know an individual's whole life trajectory. So it sounds like when you get to that point, you're these are you're testifying, you're sharing your research. I, I'm, if we could take a step back and think more about the the initial part, the communication, um, and this is a particular sticking point for me because I am not a big social media person. But um, how do you feel about the use of social media by the academic community, and do you find it useful? And and do you have tips for other scientists who maybe want to use it to push their work out, and then eventually get to that point where you are pushing for change and in rooms with activists and, and, and others. Yeah, I know. I think you and I, we, we've had some interesting conversations about <laughs> the, uh, the goods and the evils of, uh, of social media. And I, I really do think um, 
you know, it's kind of an agnostic tool. At the end of the day, it's a tool, it's an agnostic platform, but it can be used for good and it can also be used, um, you know, to promote toxic hate, right? And harassment and fake news. So, you know, I think we have to think about it. It's a platform and it's a tool. And um, I, I think it it is a really powerful tool for scientists. It democratizes the act of um, science communication and disseminating your research. It, you know, because before the main avenue, the main venue for this were conferences and conferences, it's expensive to go there. You know, it's a lot, huge carbon footprint. And especially if you have young children and especially for women with young children, there are other barriers to traveling. So I think this has opened up, given scientists new ways to um, communicate their research. Um, I mean, obviously, it's a challenge. Like Twitter is used a lot by scientists, but so here you are then having to, you know, communicate really complex ideas, you know, with 280 character limits, right? So it's not easy. Um, and so I think, like any other skill, that young scientists have to learn how to effectively use social media. It's not something that most people just have an intuitive sense for. Like you have to kind of really, I think, actively learn how to maximize the use of this tool. But um, I've had fun kind of doing that, I guess. Yeah, and in our first group of fellows for Agents of Change, the, the one thing I did notice, so I do, I am involved in EHN's Twitter account, and we would have a story about um, housing rights, housing security. And it was almost like researchers were coming out of the woodwork. And all of a sudden, I knew about 15 other researchers, uh, early career scientists who were, who were looking at similar things or maybe just interested in kind of the social aspects of housing rights. Um, so I will say it did create this sense of community that there were a lot other a lot of other people similar to our fellows the first time around looking at these issues and interested in them. And I found that um, pretty fascinating. And I think relatedly, um, I think what we saw in our first round of fellows is that at the beginning, well, not all of them were on social media and not many of them were actively using social media um, to talk about science. Um, and I think what I saw um, was that there over time, I think, and, and part of it was was participating in this program, they, they became more comfortable on social media. And you know, I am watching them kind of create, you know, finding other like-minded scientists and getting more comfortable sharing their research or talking about other people's research. And so I think, you know, kind of, I've been watching them kind of explore just, you know, and learn how to use these tools, you know. Um, and, and so I think, you know, it's kind of, it's a process, right? Right. And the, the the linchpin of that program, the underpinning of it, uh, was was kind of these first person essays where they wrote about uh, they, they were all they all had a different flavor, but for the most part, it was this blend of both the research that they conduct and how that interacts and interplays with their lived experience and kind of their their views on uh, various social issues. And uh, so, a lot of people traditionally either look to investigative journalism, something that I'm used to, or new science, obviously something that you're used to to help drive the societal change. And this is kind of a hybrid of sorts. And I'm wondering how you see agents of change driving the kinds of change that, that you wanna see both in science and kind of society more broadly. 
Sure. Um, you know, I, the way I describe this program when I talk to people, I, you know, I feel like we're um, building the car as we drive it, right? So we kind of started it with this seed of an idea to create, you know, a cadre of new, diverse and, you know, more inclusive thought leaders in, in the spaces around environment, climate, health and justice. And um, so that was kind of my big idea, you know, I didn't have it the path on how we were going to do that well laid out. And, you know, you you had some really good thoughts about really inserting the fellows themselves very directly um, into their their narratives. Um, so not just making it about science translation or the translation of their work, but really inserting themselves in those into those narratives. And I think that's why. Um, the essays um, have gained so much traction. Um, and I guess what I what I see that we're doing, um, kind of just taking, you know, being reflective on the last year is I think we're training these early career scientists on how to be more effective storytellers. Um, and I think that's so important because what we know is that data alone does not change um, be human behavior. Data alone, you know, doesn't rarely changes attitudes about a certain topic. It's it's human stories that really create change. Um, so there's something really powerful about um, about you know kind of this first person narrative form that uniquely blends research expertise with lived experience. Um, I think the other reason why it's so powerful is you know we're we are focusing on um, students who come from underrepresented backgrounds because often their their stories um, and the communities they represent they are often invisible and they've often been neglected and and I think that's another really powerful thing about what we're doing is you know through their writing where we are learning about these you know, often neglected um, topics and, and populations. Um, and so it, it's, it's both been, I think, illuminating um, to the everyday reader, but I, I know a lot of scientists um, in, in the environmental health space who are actively following um, our blogs and, um, and, and really learning a lot through them. Um, uh, what was that? Was it building the car while we're driving it? Was that? Yeah. yeah. I like that. That's uh, maybe building the car while we're we drove zero to sixty pretty fast. But yeah, that's a good that's a good analogy. There, I, I was thinking when you when you were talking about uh, there at the end about there there was almost this perfect storm too of kind of COVID happening, racial unrest happening, um, and of course our program started before all of that, but there was a lot of people all of a sudden listening to scientists and trying to figure out who were the scientists to talk to when it came to COVID. And I felt like our program kind of came at this time at a perfect time to show people that scientists are not the, um, the Einstein looking guy in the lab with the beakers and the, um, that, that scientists come from all kinds of walks of life. And I, and I felt like that was a really important part of the first round of fellows. And, and of course, at one point, you were in a similar situation to a lot of these fellows um, that we work with in Agents of Change. And I'm wondering how, you know, being a woman of color scientist shaped your academic career and your research path. I think that's a really important question. Um, 
you know, so my parents immigrated to this country um, right before I was born from India. Um, we grew up in small town, North Carolina. Um, there were very, I mean, very, very few uh, immigrants there. So, I mean, early on, you know, I definitely experienced a lot of discrimination just for being different. Um, and people just didn't understand our background. Um, my mom didn't speak very much English when she came here. And, you know, a lot of that kind of um, experience of just fe feeling like an, an outsider. Um, you know, fast forward, thinking about my experience as a professional, as an academic, I, you know, academia science, it is a predominantly white space. Um, I think being Asian is is really different than being Black or Latina. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, I think um, Black scientists, Indigenous scientists, Latinx scientists, they still face the, I think, the most discrimination. And so I, I, I do think it's, you know, you can't equate all experiences um, of people of color. There's a lot of nuance there. But um, I think one way that my identity has shaped my experience is, you know, I think about how Asians, the role of a lot of Asians in kind of higher ed and other professional spaces and our, our route to kind of upward mobility has always been through being technically proficient. And so, you know, the stereotype is, you know, the Asian Asians are good at, you know, at some of the technical stuff, but they often tend to be quiet, right? So they're not encouraged to share their opinions um, or be leaders. And I, th I think that's what, what it is, is like there were there were no examples of people who looked like me who were in leadership positions, um, especially Asian women. And so, you know, there, and I think that has an impact, right? Because it's not like I was explicitly or implicitly groomed to have big ideas or to, to take leadership positions. Um, and so, but I, I think I found a way to do that anyway. Right. But I think that is hard when you don't see people like you in those roles, because I think representation um, does matter. And so from the from the standpoint of obviously wanting diversity on on university uh, on university staffs and diversity within science. But, you know, one of our essays also touched on the fact that from Brianna that touched on when you have people in positions of power or, or in positions where they can conduct research then you have research that's more diverse. And I'm wondering if you can just kind of briefly touch on that, how it's not just putting more people of color in positions of power and in positions to be able to conduct research and promoting from within, but uh, how that makes better research essentially for a healthier society. Right, so I think that's the difference between diversity and inclusion, right? So just having, um, you know, a a staff or faculty that that look, you know, where there's more visual diversity, let's just say, but that if they're not, you know, that's not enough if they're not allowed to pursue um, the things that are important to them. Um, so I think we have to, I mean, really, we have to expand what we consider to be a successful career. We have to expand what we think is important science. Um, 
as my colleague Jacoby Wilson says, you know, it can't just be about discovery science. It has to be about implementation science. It has to be about the science of putting science into action, right? And so, um, so it's not just about having um, more diverse people in academia. We have to create a space where there, uh, you know, different ideas are valued more. Um, I think that that's what we that's where we need to go. So we would be uh, remiss if we didn't acknowledge that we are conducting this program and this this uh, podcast in a time of uh, great uncertainty. We're we're a few days away from the election when we're recording this. And, you know, this program, Agents of Change, is taking aim at some really deep rooted problems, racism, sexism, injustice and, and anti-science attitudes. Um of course, we're at this really weird place in our country, and, I, and I'm wondering how optimistic you are about seeing these changes come to light. Yeah, doesn't it feel like we're at a pregnant moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because by the time this airs, uh, the you know we'll be post-election, and hopefully we'll have results. Um, although that's also unclear how long the whole process will take. Um. I, you know, I think the fellows in this program give me optimism. Their, um, I mean, their brilliance, their creativity, their commitment to their communities, their commitment to um, social, economic, environmental equity, um, as well as their commitment to do things differently so that they don't have to compromise their values. All of that gives me optimism. Um, I, I don't think that things... Um, on their own will just get better. I think people have to really actively work um, and fight for the the change they want. So um, I don't think anybody knows kind of what the future of this country really looks like, looks like. But I mean, I think that's another reason why I'm so committed to this program, because these fellows um, do give me hope. And um, I think as I get, as I kind of enter this middle part of my career, I realize that research is an, uh, an important tool uh, for change. But at the end of the day, scientific research is slow and it really forces you to think about very narrow topics. And that, um, you know, the, it, like that research kind of has there, I have to be doing other things um, to really kind of maximize that my impact. And so um, I think mentoring and teaching um, and especially working with this really bright group of um, scientists and scholars from underrepresented backgrounds, um, you know, is kind of another way to really kind of scale the change we need. That's a great answer. I was hoping you were just going to say it's all going to be okay. That's what I... <laughs> um, I mean, I wish, but the reality <laughs> is, is um, yeah, I, I, I can't say that I, um, I feel that right now. Right, right. I, I, I think many share many share our feelings. Well, on a kind of a lighter note, uh, I have one big question and one one smaller one to go that are a little less serious. But so, what's a defining moment that shaped your identity? Yeah, I know that is um, it's a it's a big question, right? Um, 
so I think, you know, young adulthood, right? It's always, uh, I think, a pivotal time. And when I was an undergraduate, I went and studied in Madagascar for six months, which was just the most beautiful place on the earth. And I think it shaped me in a couple of ways. Um, one, it just showed me the power of nature. It also showed me kind of how intertwined kind of community health, whether it's their social health, their economic health, um, how community well-being is so tied, um, is so interrelated with kind of like ecosystem health because the poverty the people were experiencing was probably the largest threat to the amazing natural world there. And so I think that really shaped what the, the kind of the topics I decided to pursue. Um, on a more personal level, um, up until that point, I had, you know, always experienced what it was like being part of an Indian immigrant family in the US. When I went there though, um, I really kind of learned firsthand a lot about the impacts of colonialism, which is was huge because Madagascar was colonized by the French. But then in the Indian community was kind of, you know, they were both kind of in some ways oppressed by the French and the British, but they also were also oppressors of the African people there. Um, and so it just, you know, made me kind of rethink my own um, social position um, as being a member of the Indian diaspora. And so, um, yeah, I feel like, you know, in those six months there, I learned more than I learned the rest of my time at college. Right, oh, that's great. And now we're all we're all binge reading headlines and snippets and trying to stay on top of things. But what was the last time what the last book you read for fun, hopefully, but if it has has to be academic, that's fine, too. I must admit, I've not been doing enough fun reading. Um, I've been watching a lot of bad TV shows <laughs> the way I decompress. Um, but one fun book I read while I was on sabbatical last year, and that just tells you it has been a while since I've done fun reading. Um, I reread The Alchemist and I did that because it was such a formative book when I was, you know, a young adult. And I kind of wanted to see, you know, would it still, you know, what would it be like reading it, you know, 20, whatever, 25 years later. Um, so that was kind of fun um, to reread something, you know, that you kind of glommed onto when you were younger. and. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that was just fun because, you know, it it did kind of kind of, you know, it's mystical. And I, I think there is a magic in this world that we, you know, even when things are looking dark, that we we have to remember, you know, that there is a beauty and magic in this world. And so that I think that was kind of fun to tap back into. Well, that is a perfect way to end. I feel like everything is going to be okay. And Ami, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. That's all for this week. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit ehn.org and click the big orange donate button. You can also find Agents of Change at Twitter and Instagram or at ehn.org under our special projects tab. We'd also like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeneh at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just a chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeneh.com. Thanks for joining us. 
We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Have a great week, folks.